Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church podcast. My name is Ryan Cagno. The HBIC podcast brings you weekly episodes on the topic of discipleship, where we'll sit down with members of the HBIC family to hear their stories, hear about the different ways people at HBIC are pursuing discipleship, in other words, how they are learning to follow Jesus' example and obey his teachings in their daily lives in practical ways. This week, I talked with Chad Fry about many things. Um, Barbie, violence of the literal and epistemological variety, whatever that means, uh, how we can be truly nonviolent down to our core. Uh, so, so good. Thankful to be able to share it with you. It kind of starts midstream. We're having a good conversation and just turn to the mics on and we went from there. So enjoy. We are designed to be in relationship. We are designed to be in community. Mm-hmm. I think the question ultimately is which, what does that look like? Who are we choosing to be in community with it's a, a little more uh, biblical and powerful take on it is you know we will we will serve a master the question is which one <laughs> like yeah and in our self-determining world as you talked about like the idea of serving someone or something is just not in vogue at the moment mm-hmm we want to be completely autonomous, completely individual, completely self-determining, and any sense of giving agency away to something else, God, a partner, whatever, is like, yeah, um, annoying at best, dangerous at worst, right? Yeah. You know, it's not something we're celebrating, this idea of like, yeah, I want to serve other people. I want to be in a relationship with other people to serve them. Um, that's domineering patriarchy in the main. Yeah. Dear listener, you're hitting us mid-stride of a pretty deep conversation about the Barbie movie that me and Chad were having. This is Chad Fry. Welcome. Hi, all. Uh, I was expressing that I liked the Barbie movie, uh, and I thought, you know, as as far as it goes, it was an interesting uh, film, super funny, that it offered a take on how we determine ourselves as a person where, on one hand, you know, patriarchy or matriarchy or anything that um, defines relationships between the genders or whoever by domination, um, and I am defined as an accessory to another person or vice versa, how that is destructive. Um, but how I was a little dissatisfied that the answer the film offers is kind of just a little bit of self-determination, you know, like Barbie meets her creator at the end of the film um, in in a ethereal plane, and the creator basically says, to heck with it, just be, don't be who I made you to be, don't be who you are in relation to Ken, just be whoever you want to be, right? And she chooses to be like human and, and, and the flaws that come with that. Um, and I, for me as a Christian, I was just saying that I find that unsatisfying. It's a, it's a step, it's a positive step away from relationships defined by domination, but to what you're saying, just to bring us all back to what you were saying, uh, there's more than bare self-determination, uh, on offer for Christians, not just on offer, but the life of a Christian (laughs) is marked by far, far more than just self-determination. Yeah. And like... We talked a little bit about like where where does power come from? Where does change and agency come from? Yeah. And you know, Barbie goes gets the girls and goes to, I guess Constitution Hall or whatever to save Barbie Land and to get it get it right politically. 
Uh, some folks are in that boat, you know, even today, that, that change happens at a governmental level. We're going to policy it away. Um, as Christians, you know, I think ultimately we, we're confronted with this idea that God is saving us, transforming us, and that's not something that's happening at a policy level. And ultimately, I think that's kind of the core of the, you know, the crux of the matter is how are we being transformed? How are we being changed? Who are we serving? Because we're going to serve someone. Um, but yeah, like I think it's just an interesting question. Do you go the legal route to try to affect change in the world? Or do you, do you really kind of go in deeply into being transformed into another prophetic way of living. And that's kind of the Anabaptist take on it, right? Yeah. You know, I think maybe to the demise of minimizing the role of government and policy, because there is no, make no mistake, like policy does change and make impact on things. But at the core deep level, that's where I'm talking about, not, not is policy important or not but where does change and transformation happen? Right. I, I wouldn't say policy is not important, but I would say policy, if it's not joined to real transformation, is a, a brittle fix. Uh, I, I mean, I think about this in the uh, pro-life movement to some degree. That I, I think the pro-life movement, if all it achieved was... Uh, successes at the Supreme Court. Mm. You know, it's been proven that, you know, to some degree, pro-life policy doesn't necessarily correlate to less abortions and certainly not on its own to a higher view of life, you know. Insofar as the pro-life movement over 40 years has has moved the needle on what people thought about the status of the unborn um, and their hearts towards that, then that joined to policy can make a difference. And equally as importantly in the Barbie movie, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's it's not the moment in Constitution Hall where they you know reclaim Barbie land and then allow the Kens to have jobs or whatever. <laughs> I think that was the the resolution was like maybe you can like do things besides beach. Um, right. And then one's like, can I be on the Supreme Court? And they're like, no, no, let's not get ahead of ourselves. It's still Barbie land, but. That's not the moment of transformation. The moment of transformation came prior to that, right? When when Barbie witnesses the slobbering wreck that is Ken and realizes he, he's a person. Um, and all the Barbies realize that of all the Kens, right? They came to, to fight them and to get their land back and saw the reality and the humanity of these, uh, of these dolls. And... Out of that, then, policy change comes. And lasting policy change that ultimately will be rooted in the acknowledgement and valuing of another person's humanity. Um, I don't know if that's true to what you were trying to say, necessarily, whether the Barbie example or the pro-life example. Uh, but the pro-life example for me sticks out just because I think we've spent a, decades of time and money often... Um, sacrificing the means towards the ends mm. in, in in pursuit of overturning Roe. Mm. Uh, and I've been long convicted that, you know, overturning, if you care about abortions, overturning Roe isn't going to do barely anything on the ground to actually, like, materially change 
just going to make it more expensive and, and and access does change to some degree numbers in that regard but but none of that apart from heart change and, and cultural shifts in, in mind and heart will make much of a difference and I think some of those shifts have happened. I don't know what your thoughts would be on that. But. Yeah, I mean, advocacy is tricky. Like I, like I said before, I really do believe policy is important. There's no two ways about that. Um, but advocacy is almost an extreme form of reductivism. So, for instance, pro-life. That's a genius marketing title, right? Yeah. But it depends how you frame pro being for something and how you understand life. As Christians, we think life is sacred, and life comes from the creator, you know, the originator of life. I'm all pro that, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I think ultimately the question here is in this particular social issue, yeah. which has become a political issue, uh, is, you know, where where is life? Where does life start? Where, you know, what, what it's, it's almost devolved from the larger question of where does life come from? Mm -hmm. And so to be pro-life is to be really, I think, fully engaged in where life originates from and to understand that working itself out in the world today in mm -hmm. all of its iterations. Mm -hmm. So to be about that, I think it just opens the conversation up versus getting it narrower and narrower and narrower and reducing it even further, which is what policy tends to right. do, policy which is what goals advocacy are, does. Okay, yeah. Policy goals are just, by nature, reductive. Yes. Especially in this case, but maybe Incredibly. In general. And I think part of the challenge for us is to, okay, how do we expand that conversation? Because um, expanding it is ultimately, I think, helpful versus getting trapped in this incredibly reductive thinking um, and whether that's about patriarchy or whether that's about abortion or whether it's about pick your social issue right you know whatever it could be um, I think the challenge for us is how do we understand and frame that in a really big way in a sacred way yeah. because ultimately that's where all of life and power comes from which is what you know why folks like the late Ron Sider would have you know, mm -hmm. characterized himself and tried to lead the brethren in Christ into a direction of being comprehensively pro-life, where pro-life, if we're going to use that parlance, is a, is a total orientation and a total revaluing of everything and how we interact with the world and how we interact with God and others. When you make it just, we've got to overturn Roe, we set that single point on the hill that we're trying to take and... Yeah, one to the exclusion of all other manner of life issues. And then also, as I said, it tends to then, taking the hill justifies whatever it takes to get up the hill, right? Whatever it takes to reclaim it, it justifies anything, you know, um, justifies vilifying other people, it justifies pulling attentions away from the more comprehensive um, life issues, especially things that would cost us. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm wildly, I'm, I'm, I, I try to be as thoroughly and comprehensively pro-life as I can. And to the, to the, uh, dismay of 
many people on many sides, but like, you know, I, I, uh, I am pro-life as it regards the unborn. And I also therefore think we should have robust social safety nets (laughs) and, 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 or, or at the very least just, uh, zealously pursue bettering the material circumstances of, um, those suffering poverty of vulnerable women, um, right. We don't need to get into my thoughts on war and violence. I mean, we can go there, but well, that, let's that's talk about it. Too. I mean, to some like, extent, like I yeah. think this parlays really easily into issues of nonviolence. Yeah, and I would like, I would ask um, viewers out there to think about what's your definition of violence. So many times we typically talk about violence as being something that is distinctly human, and typically. Um, physical, mm-hmm. you know. Sometimes we apply it to material violence, to property or things like that. But have we thought about it seriously as epistemological violence? What I mean by that is violent ways of thinking about other people. So, for instance, being thoroughly pro-life, it calls into question, for me, Do I think violently about people that disagree with me, given the stakes that are out there? Because the stakes are incredibly high. So what does Jesus model Mm -hmm. when the stakes are really high, when things are, you know, kind of on the line, life and death kind of things? Um, What is the response when we're faced with violence and how, how do Christians, you know, respond? So I, I do feel like not just at a physical level, I think many people, listeners would agree, it is wrong completely to bomb abortion clinics. Mm-hmm. Now, the, those, those activists are out there. That's not the camp of the comprehensive pro-life view that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But I also think the question needs to be, that's an easy argument. The harder argument is, are the folks in our tribe thinking violently about folks that disagree with our position on abortion? Hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, we can talk epistemological violence. We could use that phrase. We could also just go to Matthew 5 and talk about how Jesus talks about murder and pushes murder back to the level of uh, anger directed at our brother or sister, right? Um, I've talked about this before, but, you know, I am, I am pretty thoroughly pacifist. Um, I, and yet I've been frustrated when we've had, you know, had denominational folks or I've heard people talk about pacifism and lay out the, the peace position almost strictly in terms of, so you can't be a soldier Right, talking in terms of the early church, yeah, and just kind of like um, it used to be just common among the church that we were not part of the military, part of the soldiery, we were nonviolent, right? Um, presented strictly in in those terms, right? Um, and I kind of wanted to say, like, well, wait a minute, that we got like five steps to cover before we get to that point. Like, let's start with rather than just isolating the possibility of violence to this specific class of people. Um, yeah, let's talk about the propensity for violence in all of our hearts. Not to spiritualize it away, and not to say that right. there wasn't early church consensus against being involved in the military, because there was. 
Uh, but, you know, let's talk about our inner propensity for violence as well. You know, let's, if we could, at- as, as Jesus is trying to attack in some ways in the Sermon on the Mount, if we could attack our, our sense of justification and retaliation, whatever that looks like, mm-hmm. our sense that we are on firm footing when we strike back eye for an eye, Mm-hmm. When we harbor violent thoughts in our hearts towards our brother or sister, mm-hmm. um, let's attack that taproot first. And let's say, actually, you're not justified in retaliation. And actually, if someone wrongs you, you are to uh, kind of double the offense, right? Turning the other cheek scandalously is not looking away from offense. Turning the other cheek is saying, you've slapped this one. I now offer up this one to give me a matching pair of slapped cheeks, right? Um, and, and enemy love. So attacking all those things and saying, like, well, let's first, like, why would the thought of violence ever even enter our minds? You know, it's that, it's that sense that I, an autonomous person, deserve to just strike back when, when any aspect of myself or my life is, is threatened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're walking through some deep ground here. I mean, we started with uh, Barbie patriarchy and we'll get back the there, reductionism maybe. of that. <laughs> and then we moved into like the reductionism uh, in many ways in advocacy around, you know, political issues like abortion and pro-life. And now the reductionism of the peace position to just thinking about it just in terms of like war or in, in physical violence, but trying to expand it. If we believe in peace in all of its wholeness and shalom qualities, then I think it has to cover the way that we think. And on all of these issues, patriarchy, um, you know, pro-life, you know, pick, pick the issue. Uh, the peace position is incredibly um, applic- applicable um, and we need to think about the ways that we might be violent. Um, there's no doubt some things that you and I said may offend listeners out there. Some people just be cheering, you know, like, go team, go. But some people might be like deeply hurt by some of the things or confused. I think the challenge is in the hurt or the confusion, um, work hard at not turning the dark corner to being violent, thinking about somebody who may disagree with your position, mm-hmm. demonizing them, villainizing them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and violent thinking is not like necessarily wanting to see them physically hurt, right? It's demonization. It's villainization. It's schadenfreude, right? Which is a big German fancy word for like, taking joy in someone's what we perceive as their justified downfall right yeah and it starts you know you can see it maybe in your relationships with people who are close to you or maybe people who are not so close to you but the, the conversation starts to change instead of using their name and kind of personally and affectionately talking with them uh you start to use a label right those and you, people you, those people right <laughs> those kinds of like really distant and generic labels, which actually 
move you away from seeing the image of God and the personhood of people into a collected group of generic others. And then you take that label of being others or those people and you start to attribute negative characteristics. Those people do this, this, and those people think this, this, and this. And then it's not too hard, quite frankly, to have somebody lead you from that thinking into actually these people, these other, those people are dangerous, evil, and they have their your worst uh, future in mind. So let's rally and let's get them. Like, that's the story of the Bible. It's the story of civilization. It's the story of Barbie. It's the story of Barbie, right? Coming back, coming back around. But it's over and over again. And part of the peace position is actually interrupting that cycle of violent thinking mm. and saying, no, it stops here. It stops with me. I'm not getting caught in that trap. Yeah. Ruthlessly insisting on the humanity and the individual personhood of people ruthlessly seeing the person in front of us. That's right. Ruthlessly holding in our mind's eye and in our hearts the face of the person we're speaking of or about. That's right. So before you run out there and grab a placard, either pro-choice or pro-life, just think about that kind of process. And are you interrupting the violence or are you perpetuating it? Hmm. Yeah. It's infinitely easier. I mean, thinking about it literally, thinking about like the battlefield <laughs> or whatever that I hope, Lord willing, will never be on. But um, yeah, it's easier to kill a Nazi <laughs> or a British infantryman um, than it is to to lift arms against Carl or Stephen, who has right. who has two young daughters and a dog, and That's right. has dreams uh, shared with his wife for their future. Um, you know what I mean? It's it's uh, it, it's harder. We can still do it. People can still, but for for the average person, and, and take it back a level and just think about how we consume the news and how we hear about bombings and wars overseas and people we never meet. It's easier to think about the Saudis or whoever it may be than it is to think about those individual people and faces who have families and lives and dreams and hopes and you That's know, right. created by God. I used to have a poster on my office door that said, it was a Mennonite poster. It said, a modest proposal for peace. Let the Christians of the world agree that they will not kill each other. Mm -hmm. A modest proposal. Right. So when you think about that in on the battlefield, yeah, Russian, Ukraine, you know, Africa, uh, all all across, you know, all across, um, you know, continents, countries, states, cities, there are these wars happening, um, and I, I just think a modest proposal would be: what if on the other side of that pointed gun? Is, is a brother or sister um, that's possible. And the implications of that are huge. Yeah. So I, I think that there's something going on here where uh, we can maybe take a step back and uh, think about the, how violence actually pervades every facet of these conversations. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, whether we're, we're dealing with patriarchy or dealing with, um, you know, social issues like abortion. Yeah. Two words on that really quick on the modest proposal. I mean, so I, I'm always just haunted and horrified by that story of, I think it's world war one and Easter Sunday, they like ceased hostilities and broke bread together. And then Monday morning came up out of the foxholes and we're shooting at each other again. Right. So how, how could that be possible? Um, the second thing is in seminary, I had a class on war and, um, yeah, went in thinking I was going to be really popular and everyone was going to think I was Gandhi and instead it was total, like, how dare you um, be a pacifist? But, you know, one of the critiques was like, well, what if, what if Christians hadn't stood up to defy Hitler, you know, thinking of American and British Christians? What if they hadn't enlisted and fought? And the response that I, I don't remember who had it, it was not mine, but someone said, well, what if German Christians had refused to stand up and fight for Hitler? You know, what if the German church had refused to stand up and, and, and wage that violence? Um, just as one more comment on the literal physical violence, but like, what if they had stopped the cycle, um, stepped back from the mode of being where everything is an existential crisis that um, necessitates doing whatever whatever we need to do to survive. Um, what if they had stepped back and accepted the consequences of like not fighting that war in the first place? You know, and G Germany was uh, nominally a Lutheran country, like officially, right? Um, so at any rate, yeah, um, yeah. I think to be really transparent and vulnerable about it, the peace position is so difficult that it's a process. Mm -hmm. So when people ask me that question, it's like, I really don't know, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know what I would do, but I would like to, to, to live into what I hope I would do. Mm -hmm. um, and I look at folks like Bonhoeffer, right, who wrestled with this deeply, a pacifist and a nonviolent person at first that actually was involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler because of these, these big questions. Now, I deviate from... Bonhoeffer on a number of different fronts, but there's no doubt he's probably a much uh, more devoted, thoughtful intellectual than I am in many ways. So I don't think that I am above that in in my journey. But I do know that um, this is a cycle. It's a ruthless cycle, and something has to break it. And I really only think the power of Jesus Christ can break cycles of violence and yeah. it's if we are able to be nonviolent, it is not by our own power yeah that's for sure so i think that's something that keeps me sustained mm -hmm. is that in the moment i would hope that i'd be invaded by the power of christ not to respond in violence because i know full well that is in me deeply yeah so i'm definitely not above it i think that part of the you were talking about world war one and hitler and stuff like that um, yeah. Uh, have you ever seen the movie World War Z? Yeah, I, it's hate, a, I hate zombies. But it's an interesting film, right? Yeah. It's a zombie film. If you haven't fast seen it. zombies, right? Not slow zombies. Yeah, yeah. But go on. But um, the gist of it is, it made me think. Just the title, like, what's happening in Zombie Land is that you get bitten, 
Mm-hmm. And when you get bitten, you become a, a, a dead person walking or a dead thing. You're not a person anymore, right? Mm. So I think the idea of calling it World War Z is precisely what happens in war. It's very difficult to kill a person. Mm-hmm. They effectively have to be dead yeah. already and just walking. So the way of thinking about them is to think about them in many ways as having lost the image of God, mm. completely corrupt and evil, and therefore they're able to be killed down, shot down, right? Bombed right. down. Right. Um, well, the interesting thing is that at some point along the way, that line of thinking, you've been bitten by an ideology. Mm. You've been bitten by a way of thinking about people that slowly over times or very quickly over times overtakes you to actually losing that capability of seeing the image of God in others. That kills not just them, but it also kills you. Mm-hmm. And that's what allows violence to happen. Yeah. It's very, very difficult to be violent, as you pointed out, to someone who is in relationship and community, loves people, loves things. Um, and just disagrees politically or otherwise on things to the point that they will kill for it. Yeah, and I think the Sermon on the Mount holds the antidote to the zombie apocalypse in the in the sense that we're commanded to love our enemies. And I think, again, this is Jesus' language that I think encapsulates this idea of we need to regard someone as less than human or as already dead it's a really vivid image. Um, that's what enemy making does, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Enemy making turns a person, turns a, another human into only a threat to our survival or our tribe's survival. That's right. Um, therefore, whatever we do to them is, is justified. They're not human. They're enemy, right? Uh, and we all do this to varying degrees. Yes. Right? We all do this with the opposite political party, whatever it may be. There's an uh, enemy making that is dehumanizing to a sense. And we have to um, detox from that zombification. Yes. And we have to imbibe Jesus's counterintuitive command to like love those people. And it's counterintuitive to our our desire for survival yes. and preservation, right? It's counterintuitive to that sense of existential um, threat yes. that we feel all the time. And I think uh, the way of Jesus liberates us. It heals us from that plague. Um, but it should also be acknowledged that it's a really hard road, that like uh, everything in us wants to survive, and to protect ourselves and those around us, and to some degree pacifism, to some degree lo- enemy love, um, opting out of violence and trying to follow a better way, not just opting out of violence, but opting into the way of Jesus, um, you know, it's, it's costly. I think that um, it's costly to, you know, with respect to Bonhoeffer, uh, Christians should not, in my opinion, you know, be making ethical calculations 
that result in the taking of other people's lives for any type of greater good. Like I know that Hitler's always the example that we can push the outer limits of like surely it was okay and morally right mm. to kill Hitler because we could weigh lives in the balance, weigh the lives in the balance. And it's like, well, as a Christian, we just radically believe that it's not our lives are not ours to take. Period. Um, and we can get into a whole host of other things there, but uh, it's f- it's it's folly, and it's it's risky and. Um, I'd be curious to know what you think of this, but I, I have sometimes heard, you know, um, and there's truth to this, that the, the civil rights movement and the revolution led in large part by Gandhi, um, are, you know, two, you know, two of the most successful and effective, you know, human rights campaigns in, in, in world history and certainly at least in the last hundred years, right? Um, built to some degree on nonviolence, you know, nonviolent resistance. Um, I, I wonder if they're like, if they are two outliers and that more often the path of just non-resistance and, and, and opting out of violence is not going to be effective, and it's not going to be a, a an effective mechanism for social change, that it might just result in our being hurt and losing power. Um, I don't know your thoughts on there. We went down oh, yeah. a certain okay. Certain so trail. I love this, but so, like I the, the the I is is pacifism just a road to to folly? Is it is it subversively effective? Like what is your I love this, man. So we're, we're hitting Barbie. We're hitting uh, pro-life. We're hitting... Zombies. Um, zombies. The zombie apocalypse. We and could do like Barbie's, just... Barbie Zombie Gandhi. Might <laughs> be a good title for the pod. Game on. Yeah, yeah I love how you, uh, how this is going to turn out to be titled. But um, I think the gist of it at the core here is like the loss of the prophetic imagination mm-hmm. is... Uh, at what what's at stake, right? So um, when we think about what's a working definition of violence, um, a working definition of violence you could say is dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's anytime somebody's dehumanized or the image of God is taken away from someone or it's it's life-taking, right? Not life-giving in, mm-hmm. a, in its whole sense. So I think what we're called to in, again, not being reductionist, but also expanding the conversation to understand what we're called to, big picture, is to see the image of God in all things and in other people, right? Especially, right? That God's fingerprints are all over this world and there's everything is sacred. So part of the process, you talked about civil rights and Gandhi, those are big public things. Those are things that are in history books. What's often not going to be in history books are the revolutions, the counter uh, cultural revolutions that are happening in people's households mm-hmm. when they start to think differently about their partners and their spouses and their kids. Uh, that kind of a prophetic imagination of bringing the most out of them, helping to eliminate violence in their home, in the way they think about arguments. You know, that, that is incredibly powerful but it's not going to be on the news so 
I think there is a strong revolution happening with folks of faith that are serious about Jesus at home, at work, you know, day-to-day ordinary people um, trying to combat violence where they see it. Yeah. Uh, it's probably not going to make the news. It's probably not going to be, you know, the storyline, but it's there. And I hold on to that hope, yeah. and that's our witness and testimony, right? Yeah. So if we pivot a little bit to thinking about what is our witness and testimony to others in this world, it's like, hey, God's making me a little bit more today um, nonviolent yeah. in my response to this, this, or this. Yeah, and so maybe I just want to say, like, the way of Jesus, the way of nonviolence is effective in the long term. Um, we are people of the kingdom to come and we trust that in the long term, this way of faithfulness will, you know, bring that, that city to bear. Right. But when we, um, try to impose it on the life at hand, you know, then comes violence. Right. In that sense, you know, King said it really well. And like the arc of the universe is long, but it points towards justice Mm -hmm. and understanding that, hey, we're not the end-all and be-all, and our time on earth is not how we ought to measure history or God's kingdom work. Like, it's it's so short-sighted and, again, reductionist mm. to think in terms of our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Like, when, when we're thinking about these bigger things, we're not going to solve violence. This not a, it's not a solutionist thing to think about. It's not a... Uh, uh, something that we can do this side of heaven, right? This yeah. is a, this is something that that God is doing and will will do in God's time, mm-hmm. but uh, it's far beyond us. Yeah, and uh, cleansing ourselves of that violence in some sense then involves us as individuals, as communities, letting go of that stranglehold we have on our own lives. You know, speaking of the survival instinct, speaking of, you know, who else has a stronger survival instinct than the person that assumes, you know, their life is where, you know, the, where history is measured. And, um, yeah, without that long view, that long, long view, not just of two generations from now, but of eternity um, and the coming kingdom. Yeah, globally, you know, like this idea of, American exceptionalism, even in our own cultural view of like, not just our life, but our cultural way of life over time, you know, it's like, hey, God's working all around the world, Mm -hmm. all over the universe. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, this is a big, big picture. And I think that's, that's where we can offer some corrective by opening these, these, these problems or these disagreements up to get bigger views on the sacredness of all things. Wendell Berry says this. I love it. Wendell Berry, for those of you who might not know, is a Kentucky farmer poet, yeah. writer extraordinaire. I really, really like him. But he says this. There is no such thing as sacred or unsacred places. There are only sacred and desecrated places. Mm. So this understanding that as believers, as Christians, as Jesus followers— all the world and all of history, all of eternity, all of our galaxy and our universe is, in fact, sacred. We desecrate it when we forget that. Mm. And ultimately, that's where violence comes from. 
Mm. Yeah. Thinking the ground I stand on is sacred and my enemies is not. That's right. And so I desacralize theirs in my own imagination and commit atrocities in defense of mine and desacralize my own as well, you know, sully it with violence in defense of it. First, you know, go ahead. I was just going to say, and it doesn't mean that we don't believe and are passionate and aren't committed about what we think, right? It's just that we draw the line. It's like, I'm not going to be violent towards someone else that disagrees with me, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I will, um, I'll die for my belief, but I won't kill for it. Yeah. Right? That kind of cliche thinking, but I think there's truth in it. But that's the root of it, yeah. Yeah, I will, I'm so committed to that, that I will die for my belief, but I will not kill for it. Hmm. And there's an incredible power there. It's Hmm. not passive in that sense of pacifism. It is incredibly active and powerful. Yeah. Yeah, if, if the impulse to survive and fight and kill and zombie bite other people, if that's our default, that's this rushing river around us that wants us to, wants to take us down the Chesapeake, right? Um, then it's not passive to swim upstream of that river. <laughs> it's not passive to pull yourself out of that water, right? It's, it's, that is resistance um, in a very real sense. It's some of the hardest things we can do. Mm-hmm. That's good. I'm going to go pee. Do it. Well, I can put that on the pod. Or maybe I will. You don't know me. Oh, 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 oh,